0: What's up, BikeHumor fans? There are a lot of candid conversations that happen when industry folks get together. And one of my favorite people to chat with is Randall Jacobs, founder of Thesis Bikes and Logos Components. Before he launched those brands, he worked for others and helped develop some interesting technologies that you may or may not see in future products. Whether you do or don't isn't the point though. It's really about why you haven't seen them already. There's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes of product development. And in this episode, we talk about how that works, why bikes aren't as advanced as they could be, and why the patent process really needs an overhaul. This one might rattle a few cages, but I think you're going to really enjoy this inside look at the bike industry. Please welcome, Randall Jacobs. Hey Randall, welcome to the Bike Roomer Show. Thanks Tyler, I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. So uh, we're gonna have, I think, a very interesting conversation. Might upset a few people. Sure to entertain a few people. (laughs) You, You know, you've got such a history in this industry. Even though I think probably most people have no idea who you are. You've had an electronics company. You've done some consulting. You have a bike brand called Thesis, and now you have a component brand that does wheels and cockpit and I think it's going to be expanding into some other parts that you you know you can talk about if you want. But mm-hmm. before we dive into all of that and and maybe I should also add just to keep people on the hook here. Because of your experience, you've kind of seen the ins and outs of all aspects of the industry. And I think that's where it's going to get really interesting is your insights and the fact that you really don't seem afraid to sort of tell it like it is, which has made for some really fun chats over the years. <laughs>
1: well, I, I should say, um, tell, it, tell it as I see it, um, okay. which is only like one, one particular angle on how it is. Um, yeah. But I, I won't claim to know the, uh, the fundamental truth of anything.
0: Yeah, well, that's, you know, I'm glad you said that because the more I learn about everything, right, it's like we tend to adopt the views that we like and that suit the narrative that we enjoy Mm. in, in all aspects of life, right? Whether it's politics or bike or whatever it is, sometimes it makes it really hard for us to even entertain an opposing viewpoint. But yeah, well, before we do that, tell me a story. Tell me something fun that's happened to you recently or a long time ago.
1: Well, you prompted me earlier and I put a story in my head. So it'll be a long time ago story. Okay. Um, so I, uh, I don't know if I, you know, that I lived in China for a number of years, speak Mandarin, spent, um, you know, th- that, that was kind of core to my kind of early experiences in the bike industry too. But I was a pack fodder pro mountain biker, and this is in like 2009,
0: in and, China or here
1: in the U.S. Uh, I w- here, but because because of my life situation at the time, you know, I was I was in grad school in in the Boston area, uh, studying actually uh, law and diplomacy. <laughs> so a l- little bit of nerdery there uh, with a focus on U.S.-China relations, and also was a you know was a a mid-pack at best uh, pro mountain biker, but you know got to live the dream. Of living out of my Honda Element, traveling around the country, and you know, hitting up the races and sleeping in national parks or the occasional
0: Walmart parking lot. It's better to do that as a mid pack pro than a mid pack sport racer who could never even break into the expert ranks. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, you you know, I, it's kind of the same. Honestly, I wasn't making money. Like my, you know, I I think I got paid like a grand or something for a race once, but in the end, like pro in in um, you know, I'm using quotation fingers. Uh, I wasn't making a living at it. I was, you know, I had a job on the side. So I was, so I was a grad school student. I was, um, a pack fodder pro in the spring and summer, and I was working for a Chinese trading and manufacturing company in Guangzhou uh, in Southern China near Hong Kong. Uh, and so I decided, well, tie all these things together. I'm going to go do my, um, preseason training in China. And so I flew to Hainan Island, which is the big island in the South China Sea, and I uh, basically bike-packed around the, the mountainous center of the of the, uh, the island. I uh, had a great experience. A lot of times solo, um, but also made some friends along the way in the Chinese cycling scene. Uh, and on one of my rides, I was uh, staying in, in uh, Shui Manzhen, which is at the bottom of... Um, uh, uh, Wuzhishan, so Five Finger Mountain, and there's this village at the, at the bottom of Five Finger Mountain in the center of, of uh, Hainan Island, and just going on these long adventures uh, solo. And one day, I was an hour and a half out from anywhere and bombing down this mountain, and I had, was going down set of, a double track with a cliff on the side, and I wanted to get to the inside line, so I had a little bit of margin of safety, and I didn't see the drainage ditch that was in the grass. So that ate my front wheel. I landed on my forehead and uh, ended up breaking uh, C3 through C5, uh, a process off of C3 through C5 in my upper vertebrae um, and had a concussion and so on. So lying on the ground, kind of wiggling my fingers and toes, I had the sharp pain in my neck and I'm like, okay, I can still move, but you know, I I need to be careful. Uh, After 15 minutes or so, you know, Got up on my feet because nobody was coming to the rescue. I hadn't seen anyone in you know in an hour or more and you know, I'm on this you know double track connecting remote villages and uh, got my pushed my bike back up the mountain and then slowly, very slowly descended back uh, into town and started making arrangements and missed my my flights back to Guangzhou. So I had to take, I had to get first a bus to the main city in Sanya and then a, another bus to the other side of the Island, then a ferry to mainland and then two more buses to get to Guangzhou. And I had a doctor's appointment that I just missed. And so I essentially went to my, my boss's house, took a shower, hopped on a flight, got to the U S went right to the ER.
0: <laughs> Jeez.
1: <laughs> that was a three day ordeal. So, so there's, there's my, my, um, my story for you.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, I don't know if that's a fun story, but it's really an interesting story. (laughs) Had had no, um, I was back, um, I was back on the bike in
1: about three weeks. I was told by my doctor that the risk of associated with atrophy was greater than the risk associated with, um, the injury because there was no displacement in the vertebra. So, um, so yeah, I had a little bit of discomfort, but, uh, otherwise that was the, actually the only time I ever used my trainer by the way, too. (laughs) I hate riding on a trainer.
0: Yeah, me too. I do it, but I don't like it. Yeah, man. Well, I guess that's about as good an outcome as you could hope for from such a wreck. And, you know, damaging the spine is never, never fun. Yeah. Right on. Well, I don't have a specific agenda because uh, these conversations tend to ramble. ramble. Uh, So uh, just figure, like, I know you have some opinions. Where do you want to start? like, tell me, tell me about the electronics company. Like what did you do before you launched thesis bikes?
1: So I was at specialized for a hot minute, um, and doing a mix of, uh, products and, um, market development. Um, and you know, that's, that's where a lot of the, uh, relationships and the upstream, uh, came with, you know, the, the owners of factories and things like that. So that was a challenging time, uh, but also a time that, that, provided a lot of, uh, context and opportunity. Uh, after that, I started a company called Open Bike. And the, the thinking there was, we have, a, a duopoly in the, in the bike industry with SRAM and Shimano, and you have, uh, a wide number of companies. Um, this is, would be everyone from FSA to TRP to, you know, Praxis and, and many others, uh, Sunrace, who make, say, drivetrain components, like shifters, derailleurs, and so on. Um, but they, they can't make the whole package. Um, and this is due to patents or it's due to, in the case of electronics, uh, technical competency, especially around the software and the power management and things like that. So with OpenBike, the idea was, okay, let's create an open platform for bicycle electronics that solves for power and solves for communication on a network, uh, in that case, uh, CAN bus, the same type of protocol that's used for automob- automotive systems. Um, and then solves for connectivity, too, via Bluetooth connection or, or cellular um, to be able to com- communicate with the internet for live updates, integration with um, software applications and things like that. So it was a, a push to create an open an open platform and, and an open set of standards around that to foster innovation and competition and you know frankly as a pushback against this duopolistic dynamic.
0: What year was this? Like, what had SRAM started developing the ETap and Shimano had Di2 at this point? Shimano had Di2, um, and we actually hacked that, but
1: you know the it wasn't. <laughs> We we ended up using Campy components because all their control systems were centralized. It was easier to hack their motors. Um, We we just bypassed everything. Uh, SRAM had it underway. And I actually remember very specifically in my early brash entrepreneur mode, cornerings, uh, stand day at a, uh, at a trade show, probably interbike and be like, Hey, you know, you guys are, are like, you know, the number two in the industry and like Shimano has Di2 and, you know, we're creating this open platform and you can be a, a significant, you know, player in it and, uh, and, uh, let's collaborate. Uh, but by that time they were well underway with, um, the protocol around, um, I think it was called ETAP initially, and now it's AXIS. Um, which, you know, was designed to be locked down from the beginning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Very closed system. And I think, yeah, you know, they made a selling point of that, right. Which is smart and, and not necessarily a bad thing in that you can't hack it because you don't want somebody else like figuring out how to shift your bike for you in the middle of a race or something. <laughs> yeah. Things, that, things that, that's, go wrong. That's, a, that's a red herring though, to be honest. Yeah. It, it seems like there's, an, I mean, I don't I don't suppose it's foolproof, much like, you know, hackers these days can do just about anything. But I also feel like, you know, like I pair my headset with my phone and I don't ever end up with somebody else playing their music on my headset or taking my yeah. music onto their headphones, right? Like You, I, I you think can do it's that with an open really protocol. Sh-
1: you just need an open protocol that has a security handshake. Um, and if you really want to cause chaos in say like a big bike race where everyone's using wireless electronic shif- shifting, shifting, you just flood the spectrum with noise, which is why we have the FCC to control what devices, you know, can output at certain frequencies and what intensities and so on. Um, you know, you can't, it's, it's illegal to put new firmware on your router and make it, you know, four times as powerful uh, because it would interfere with
0: other people's usage. Right. And yet somehow I can still see like 30 Wi-Fi networks in my house. From Correct. Yeah. So and that, that's, else.
1: and that's the balance. And so, you know, when you have one, yeah. One standard for all you could, I mean, 30 apparent, you know, it seems like the protocol has, is robust enough to handle that. But if you had even more than that, you know, there's probably some threshold at which the noise to signal ratio is so great that, um, it becomes unworkable. Yeah. Is, um, oh, I forgot
0: what I was going to ask. Completely spacing.
1: I mean, we're going deep nerd here on, <laughs> on, on very, um, Bicycle adjacent sorts of topics.
0: Yeah, I uh, like it though. So then, so Sram says no. You talked to Stan, you know, basically like no, thanks. But he didn't, say, he didn't say no. He listened. He was very polite.
1: Yeah, but, um, you know, the, and, and the I reached out to their product is, teams
0: and things like that.
1: Uh, the end result was yeah. I mean, the end, on end on result was. Um, and 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 I don't blame them. Um, but you know, they, there's if you type in you know um, Sram, Sues, Shimano in, um, anti-competition suit or something like that, you'll see that early in the early days of SRAM, um, they were grip shift and grip shift had a product that interfaced with a Shimano, um, flat bar, it was a flat bar shifter, um, and interfaced with a, with a rear derailleur. And so Shimano didn't like that. And so they would constantly vary their pull ratios.
0: So, <laughs> oh, and that, I remember you know, those days.
1: Yeah. So the, the pull ratio was the protocol of its day, right? It's the way that the shifter could, talks to the derailleur, right? Through a pulling of a cable. Um, and, you know, constantly vary the pull ratios. Okay. So now SRAM, ha- you know, GriffShift then has to create different things for different pull ratios or whatever. And it, and it makes it harder to, to enter the market. But then, you know, what Shimano would do was was called bundling, where there would be some, if you buy the entire group as an OEM, as a bicycle brand, uh, they give you a substantial discount. And in fact, that discount is greater than the cost of grip shift. And so now it's uneconomic to have grip shift in an OEM bike. And you know OEM spec dry. It may not be the highest uh, margin business, especially as a a company just trying to elbow your way in. But that creates the le- legitimacy, the brand awareness, and the scale necessary to get your cost structure down and your sales up, sufficient to actually be a player in the space. So SRAM shu- sued Sima- Shimano for these and other practices, and won a multi million dollar lawsuit. Um, fast you know, fast forward to today. Well, you know, like. If you want to buy a partial group set as an OEM of, you know, SRAM's new Axis Red group, and you want to use a different crankset because it better meets the needs of, of your riders as defined by you, the product manager, the, the product creator, uh, well, they can say no. And, you know, they have certain minimums, right? So it may be like you have to purchase $100,000 a year. Well, if you're a small brand, that means you you, you can only pick one of the two because, if you're just getting off the ground, $100,000 of buying is a lot of money. Um, but even amongst big brands, it's like, okay, well, um, you know, the, the nexus of power in the bicycle industry for a long time was the road brifter. Because if you think about it, if you control the lever, then you control the, the pull ratios, which means you control the derailleur. If you control the derailleur, you control how the, the shifters and the derailleur interface with the bike. If you have a hydraulic shifting, well, that system is going to be sold as a complete system and rightfully so for safety reasons, right? Yeah. Um, Hydraulic braking. Hydraulic braking. Yeah. Yeah. And so now you control the interface between the calipers and the bike. Um, And so already with those mechanical systems, you know, you, you can, you're controlling a lot of what can happen in terms of bicycle innovation and you're shutting out competition through you know, making things non-interoperable. But, you know, once you have those components, it's like, well, if you want to buy my shifter and my derailleur and hydraulic brake system, well, there's only two choices. So I'm going to force you to buy the entire group because, um, you know, if you don't
0: like it, great, go go buy something somewhere else. You know, the other way they kind of lock you into that too is with the cassette cog spacing, right? And even mm-hmm. the, the chain ring, chain you know, the space between the chain rings, right? Because the derailers yep. may only move at a certain amount and the other brands might move it a little bit different amount. And so you're you're either going to have like crappy shifting or perfect shifting, depending on whether you try and mix and match, right? And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, the the plus side of this, because I don't want to sound like we were just bashing everything, It you know, from a business st- standpoint, it makes excellent sense to bundle and make things optimized as a system. You know, the pro for the riders is that you do end up with, incredibly good drivetrains, as long as you're not trying to mix and match.
1: Yes. At the same time, though, what would we have if we didn't have these anti-competitive dynamics, right? We have self-driving cars being deployed in cities around the world um, on a trial basis. And yet it took, you know, look at the state of technology in the bike industry. I mean, it's, 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 how long did it take us to have, you know, electronic derailleurs as a mainstream feature, it's not a complicated project. I had a single co-founder engineer, uh, Kyle Mana, on OpenBike, and he was able within a month to take a Campagnolo rear derailleur and have a uh, an ARM M3 chip tied into it uh, and a CAN bus to to uh, whatever uh, CAN to whatever protocol uh, converter and so and some other circuitry, create a custom circuit board, and created a protocol that controlled that derailleur. And not only did it control it and tell it like where to be, um, we could, we could make it the same derailleur work with nine, 10, 11, 12 speed, however many speeds we could control exactly how much that thing moved. And not only that, we, we looked at the, the voltage spike as you were shifting as an indicator of, um, you know, like if, if you got a really big voltage spike, then we knew that we were trying to force it too much. So we would back off and then try again. Um, we had auto calibration on it as well. And this was like a few months of work from one guy. I, I'm not technical. So why is it that it took so long for us to get the level of technology we have in the bike industry? And why is it so expensive? Like I just bought a, um, a, a cargo e-bike that has a Bafang motor and a, it's really, really outstanding, life-changing. It's like 1300 bucks because it's tying into the, the motorcycle and moped supply chains. As opposed to the bicycle supply chains. Hmm. So, you know, I I think like SRAM's transmission, which is kind of like drivetrain, only more proprietary and closed, um, is great, right? It's every, like, I would do it that way. Um, Except now everything is locked down. And in fact, it's a way of locking down the frame too. It's a Trojan horse for making frames incompatible with other drivetrains. Now, I'm curious
0: to see what hell Shimano and TRP do their eventual you know, full direct mount type design because, and I've even asked SRAM about this and, you know, they didn't get a real good answer, which I totally understand, but I have a hard time believing that, you know, the frame manufacturers who, you know, when SRAM introduced UDH, they were having conversations with the frame manufacturers about transmission, right? Say, look, this is why we're really doing this. UDH is great, but transmission is where we're headed. This direct mount concentric rear derailleur thing is where we're headed. We need you to make your frames to work with that and four years, five years, whatever it was, I can't imagine a big brands like Specialized and Trek saying, sure, if there was no way that Shimano and, you know, eventually say TRP or MicroShift, whoever, would also be able to use that frame design. So there's, there has to be something because the bike brands aren't going to put all of their eggs in SRAM's basket.
1: Well, what you're, what you're describing is you're essentially saying um, there should be like Hopefully there's sufficient power elsewhere in the bike industry that could push back against that. Um, well, I mean, in the case of Shimano's early dominance, it took SRAM using the courts. Um, and, you know, I, I would like to see standards open up um, without that sort of approach. Uh, I think it's possible, but it absolutely makes sense why a profit maximizing company would want to tend towards monopoly. And there are, there are certain benefits associated with monopolies, you know, uh, not a huge Peter Thiel fan in terms of his policy, but he is right about, um, you know, you look at, um, uh, what was it? Uh, the Bell companies and Bell labs and the, you know, there was a, they had a monopoly and they had the resources to fund some really breakthrough research that, you know, resulted in technology that is, um, you know, underpins so much of modern society. Question is like you know could those things have also been achieved without um, having having a single player with an entrenched monopoly that is um, you know that and and that's I think that's a question that you know we who work in the bike industry um, might want to ask as as we think about like what sort of industry do we want to have to support the riders in this activity that we all love and think is important from a fitness standpoint, a community standpoint,
0: from a mobility standpoint, um, and so on. Yeah, I, I think the question I would ask is like, what's the, if there's gonna be a monopoly or something like that, what is the the benefit to the riders or the end consumer and how does it, does that outweigh the negatives? You know, I think about the monopoly we have here locally anyway, where I'm at with the electric company, right? Like we have Duke Power, that's it. you You can't choose another power company if you want power at your home you get to choose Duke Power. And I think it's hilarious that they advertise to try and make themselves look good because we don't have an option. They send out surveys like, you know, we want your feedbacks, like you don't care because you do shit about it anyway. You know, and and I look at it and the, the way they run their power lines here anyway, I've talked to the Parks and Rec Company and like if we want to, if the city wants to redo this one particular greenway that runs along under the power lines, it has to be built to highway standards so that Duke Power can run their trucks on it. And we're like, this is a bicycle path and it has now be built. So it's like we as a society, our community gave up our right to build the type of greenway infrastructure we want in the city to a, a third party private company. And I think that's horribly wrong. At the same time, it's like our city's not the one paying for the power lines and they're not the ones paying to repair the power lines. And do you really want like five different power companies all running their own power lines and have this sh- shit show well, of cables everywhere, and, and, right?
1: And, and you wouldn't have that because it's so prohibitively expensive. So that, that's an yeah. example of like a natural monopoly where it makes sense to only have one set of lines. It, it makes sense to have one grid. Yeah. Um, at least um, in a paradigm where you have centralized power production and so on, um, yeah. you could have distributed power production that all ties onto the grid. And, and that's something that you've seen, um, you know, in, in certain markets where you have uh, one operator for the grid and other operators who are delivering power. And you can even choose that you want your power to come from, a, you know, a solar farm And you pay some, maybe at the time, solar energy was more expensive to deliver. So it's, you pay a premium. Um, And, you know, the electrons are the electrons. So you can't, like, choose the, those electrons came from this solar farm. Yeah, hopefully you 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 can't
0: tell the difference, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, but, yeah, but, but at the same time, it's like, okay, the, the authority that's doing the purchasing on your behalf will make sure that X number of watt hours are purchased from this facility so that they can then go and invest in growing their facility and thriving and things like that. And so like so, th- it's not all bad. Like monopoly is not all bad. It's it's more like um when does it be when does the 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 cost that way or the benefits? That's yeah maybe that's maybe, what maybe we
0: need like considered. like our bicycle industry grid operator needs to be the ones that Set these standards for, you know, derailleur interface, right? And then that way anything can come along. But I, I feel like if that were the case too, though, and I'm just trying to argue it from the business side, um, is that I can't imagine in that instance, SRAM or Shimano pouring as much research and oh, development yeah. into it if they're like, well, if I'm going to do this and then someone can just copy it, like, why would I bother? Right. Well, why would you support it
1: if you don't have to, right? You already have one of the two dominant positions. This is going to open up the market to competitors. Um, so why would you do that?
0: Yeah, I don't know. This. I mean, if, no, if I could have cornered no... the market on like bicycle blogs when I started Bike room and said, nobody else can do a blog format, I'd be like, hell yeah, I would have done it, right? <laughs> Instead, everybody ended up copying us over the next like five years. Yeah, well, I'd, I mean, everyone's copying everyone else in some regard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, well, so let's, let's go back. So you, you, you touched Tram. They're like, yeah, we're working on ETAP. Shimano already had DI2, Campy had EPS. What did you do with OpenBike? Like, where did you take that open source protocol that you had created from there?
1: So I spent a lot of time talking to, uh, uh, uh Taiwan factory owners and engineering teams. I won't name names just, just in case, but you know, Any drivetrain that you have seen either patents for or some prototype of or heard rumors of, I was almost certainly talking to their leadership and engineering teams. Was trying to raise money um, specifically from uh, the Taiwan manufacturing base because that's where the resources were and that's where the opportunity was. So, um, you know, you you think of, well, I'll give you an example of a company without, you know, well, I mean, I'm friendly with the folks at TRP. I know I know the leader, I know the own, the three owners, I know their uh, US um, head, Lance Larrabee, you know, good relationship. And they're the owners of that factory, they want to be the next Shimano. They want to be the next Ram, right? But at the time, um, and, and, and with all that entails, like they would love to have that monopoly. Um, at the time though, they were shut out. And so, you know, I, I went and I said like, here's what we're doing. Um, here's how it'll work. Here's a prototype. Um, we've raised this much money. Um, you know, we had raised like a quarter million dollars to get to an advanced prototype. Um, and we needed three million dollars to productize it. Like hardware making, making a hacky prototype is a very different thing than making a shrunken down, super reliable, watertight, uh, version of that thing.
0: Yeah. And and not, and not just make it once, but be able to repeat it for a million units. Right.
1: Yeah. And, and, and not just from a hardware standpoint, but from, but from a software standpoint, right. Okay. We have one set of shift buttons integrated into a, a set of TRP levers um, that has a little, uh, you know, reference design PCB in it. And then a derailleur from can't be with a little PCB, and we have some sensors and lights around the bike, all with their own little PCBs running their own uh, separate firmwares, communicating over this protocol, and it works. But if you were to introduce something else to it, like we needed to create a protocol, a, a core operating system, a real-time operating system, that, and a, a set of protocols as to how to communicate over it, and a bunch of reference design PCBs that other companies can embed in their devices such that when anyone hooks something up, it just works. And that's, that's again, like getting a hacky prototype to work is, is an achievement for sure, but that's like 10% of the path. And that's where that 3 million came in at the time. Now it would probably be six or seven. And uh, we couldn't raise it. Uh, you know, basically got a lot of meetings, got flown out places, but, you know, and, and reasonably so. They're like, well, come to us when you actually have the product ready because we can't <laughs> build to it until you have the product. Uh, which is a really valuable lesson as an entrepreneur um, of like, uh, don't boil the ocean. Don't try to boil the ocean. Mean like what? I was, well, uh, you know, I wanted to build the platform and then, you know, build it and they will come. Whereas if I were to do it again, I would have built the first product, full product that actually does something. I would have built a lighting system that, you know, is centrally powered and communicates over a protocol. And that has some cool features. And I would have sold that through uh, a, um, uh, a campaign. You know, I would have reached out to you and be like, hey, we got this new thing. Can I get, you know, hey, Tyler, can you, you pay attention to me? Can you get my, you know, thing posted on, on Bike Rumor? <laughs>
0: which we would, of course.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, it's makes... actually an interesting place where, where you yeah. sit in the industry too, by the way, um, as I, I think I've described bike room in the past
0: is like kind of the industry's techno technological ledger yeah, it's a good good explanation. I've heard it called other things, but um but one of my favorites, just as a total sidebar was I think one time many, many years ago, like early on bike magazine called us the uh the consumerization of of cycling, you know, just because all we talked about was the products and the tech, like here's all the shiny new things, and you know the implication of course is like of course you need to go buy these shiny new things because they're better than the prior shiny new things, but I got a kick out of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely there can definitely be something of that, but I think what you the service that you provide is is something different than say like um, so you do reviews and and you have some really good reviews, but you also have it in the context of like you're pretty much anything that comes out in the bike industry. If you want to hear, you want to make sure you hear about it, you have to read Bike Rumor, and that's a different service than say James Huang's long term review on a, uh, Enduro XD 15 bottom bracket. And you, and you guys do that too, but like, you're not going to go to wherever James is working, uh, currently at a escape collective, um, to find everything that's going on in the bike industry. And so it's a different, it's a different place. And I think it's really valuable. Like I, I read bike rumor because I want to know what's going on.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's fun how to see how everybody's kind of like carved out their little niche, right? Like, you yeah. know, we certainly focus on the products attack. Other people do long form stories, racing, whatever it is. So yeah, it's neat. I think, I mean, that's kind of what you have to do anyways, find your niche and really like focus on that. And then, you know, it doesn't if, if I were to start up again, right? Like I would not start another bike rumor now because there's already bike rumor, right? That's the, I think that's where it's getting harder for anybody trying to break into the media industry now is you have, you know, a lot of big players doing what they've been doing for 10 or 15 or 20 years now. And then you have a lot of creators that are doing, you know, one or two people get together and create a YouTube channel or a blog or whatever it is. But it's very much personality driven as opposed to um, product driven or review driven. I think a lot of this stuff.
1: Sometimes. Yeah. And, and sometimes it's a mix and I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have the personality part, be part of it. As long as it's, um, say uh, an example would be like Russ Roca and, uh, his wife, Laura at uh, Pathless Pedaled. I mean, you, you, do you know, do you know their work? Uh, I'm familiar with them. I don't know them well, but. So they have built a YouTube channel that focuses on, uh, one of their lines is like the supple side of cycling. um, And, you know, they, they have people who are just, um, you know, party pace is another thing that they is part of their, uh, you know, language around it. And they're a site that does reviews and, and, uh, adventure, uh, content and so on that is focused on people who just like to ride bikes. Maybe that aren't like skinny, shave legged people in Lycra you know, going out and hammering and wanting the fastest, lightest thing all the time, but people who just want something that works and who are out to have a great experience. Um, and he's built a business on that, like that—that's his full-time living, um, which is great. And it's a, a, a market segment that maybe not wasn't very well addressed in the past because so many people in the bike industry look like you and me, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with 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 us, but there's um, there's a, a lot of other people who like to ride bikes. And maybe we don't know how to speak
0: to them because that's that's not how we ride. Yeah, that's true. It's hard to um, it's kind of hard to step out of what you you know what cycling means to you, right? Like, why doesn't it mean that for everybody? You know, I, it's funny. I was like having this conversation with my brother the other day because we're going on a family trip, and I'm like, "Hey, yeah, like me and I, my kids, we're doing this thing, and it's like super adventurous." And you know, like, let's go do this. Why don't you guys all come do this with us? And he's like, "That's great for you." This is yeah. what me and my family want to go do. I'm like, to me, <laughs> that looks boring as hell. And, you know, but to them or, you know, my stuff is not appealing to them. And it's, it's hard sometimes to wrap your head around that because you think what you do, you know, <laughs> I think what I do is awesome. I'm like, why would everybody not want to do what I do and like it the way I like it? You know, it's, yeah, it's, that one's tough sometimes, but. I, I put most of my miles these days, um,
1: uh, uh, confession here, uh, particularly in front of such an audience, um mostly on my cargo bike. I've got a a milk crate on the front and a milk crate on the back. I'm going to make some running boards and a a seat for it. And I use it to get everywhere. I go to the farmer's market. I make materials runs sometimes if I'm getting stuff that isn't too heavy for my, the house I'm rebuilding. Um, I go visit friends and things like that. And it's wonderful. You know, I'll I'll go rip down to uh, Kingston Point Beach and bring a a chair and my phone. So I have a, a tether connection and and work on the beach. And th- that bike has fundamentally changed my relationship to where I live. And that was something that was not part of my relationship to bike before. I was a I was a hammerhead. I was uh I wanted to rip your legs off and you know <laughs> make you suffer and question why you had ever ridden a bike as I was, pull away from you on the hill. <laughs>
0: Nice. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah um maybe i'm not coming to
0: ride with you in a few months
1: <laughs> well no but I, uh, I, my, I don't i don't ride like that anymore it was a, a yeah. time and place where that was a uh, that was rap, my identity was wrapped up in being a fast rider
0: yeah i hear you um it's funny i enjoy the cargo bike too and i will say like uh the the challenge that I posed to myself, and I've done it a few times now, is to make a full family-sized Costco run on ours, and it's, you know, you get the huge, like, size saddlebags and uh, the big basket on the front, and it can be done. So it's, yeah, yeah. yeah if you distribute yeah, the mass fun. right, you know,
1: some of them have like a, a
0: horsepower and a half. That's
1: enough getting you moving at twenty-eight miles an hour. You're you're more limited by brakes at that point.
0: Oh, I wish mine were a class three. I'm I'm limited to twenty, which is probably enough when you have that much weight on it. Oh, but. it feels. Class Class Three is nice. I know for everything <laughs> else for sure. Um, well, let's let's. Uh, so I I do want to ask you about one kind of like wireless hack that I've, I've seen that seems like it might be stopgap's not the right word, but it it sort of is an open source in a way, right? So I don't know if you've seen what Archer is doing with their. Oh, yeah a oh, wireless yeah. group, right? So they have a little thing that sticks to the chainstay and instead of running a mechanical a cable derailleur boulder. cable, yeah, all the way up to a shifter, it runs to that and then you have a wireless shifter button. So it's kind of neat and it's kind of, I think, in the spirit of what you were doing, but it's definitely a, a, a hack, right? But is that, like, I mean, how do you see that fitting into the ecosystem as, or, or something like that, as, you know, everybody's doing more and more proprietary wireless communication between their groups? Um, it's a workaround patents, right? So it's a it's
1: a cable puller, right? And there's a bunch of different ways you can implement it. And the key thing that it's doing is it's telling a motor to move a certain amount between, you know, virtual indexes for different gears. So you could program it to work with any cassette as long as it's calibrated to you know, the, um, the motor movement to derailleur movement ratio is calibrated essentially.
0: Right. But, you know, why don't they make a derailleur? I was, yeah, that was kind part. of my next question is like, ID. what's, what's stopping. So it's the, uh, yeah, my next question is like, why is some startup not making like some derailleur that's wildly, because every know, way lighter, to make a derailleur failure. has
1: been patented left, right and center. Hmm. And you know you'd be astonished at the types of i mean you you report on patents in by groomer
0: yeah you know some of the and stuff it's... that you're
1: able to patent is it makes me question you know I, I actually take a, a i don't th- i was going to say I take a more radical have a more radical perspective on patents, but I don't actually think that this is a radical perspective. I think our patent system was designed at a time when technological innovation moved much more slowly and was less accessible to um, you know, to, uh, you know, more players, more contributors. Um, now, you know, you can, you can get like, um, if you're a, if you're a hardware hacker, like you can order stuff on eBay and AliExpress and wherever else, PCB way, all these companies, you can get stuff done really cheaply. And if you're clever, you can string it together and make it work. It doesn't take a huge company and huge resources um, and, you know, things move so quickly. It used to be that, like, you know, you gave a 20-year patent because it would take years and years to develop it and then years and years to actually get it to commercial uh, commercialization. And then you only have a few years to actually sell it and, you know, recoup it. And the idea was to create a sufficient incentive for that big risk of, you know, the R&D costs to be taken in order to encourage innovation. I don't think that the innovation that I'm seeing in the bike uh, industry—I think it would happen even if patents were ten years or five years. I think it would also happen if the some of the stuff that's allowed to be patented wasn't allowed to be patented anymore.
0: Yeah. Well, we get a new standard every four or five years anyway. So. Well, and it's (laughs) a standard. What's the point?
1: (laughs) Well, and and think about the 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 you know. So an example of something that I would view as, as an anti-competitive standard would be something like, you know, UDH, right? Mm. So you create this standard that every derailleur that exists works with it, but only one derailleur will work with it when the UDH, when the derailleur hanger is eliminated from the bike. Now, you know, if you ask, if you try to corner SRAM on that, they might say like, oh, you know, they, they might demure. But that's, that's another part of uh, dynamics in patents. And this is true in the tech space, too, where, you know, big companies have war chests of patents and they're all infringing on each other's patents. And it's just a matter of like, you know, a patent is a right to sue like that. That essentially is you know, a patent is is something that the government grants that allows you to sue that other party and have the government enforce the, um, the result of that lawsuit through threat of, you know, coercion, right, you know, um, you can, you know, they can confiscate funds or, or send you to jail or whatever else, right, so government has a monopoly on violence of, of various forms. <laughs> I mean, that, like, you know, stealing from, taking somebody's funds or, or putting them in jail is, is, like, you know, it's an aggressive act, and, and, you know, that's part of the social contract, but, um, you know, they, like, take narrow wide, you know, SRAM has gone around and, and um, has sued some parties and not suit others. And there are a lot of companies making narrow wide chain rings,
0: and they know not to get too big. Yeah, that one, I, I still kind of wonder how, um, you know, you have like wave patterns in the set and that are from various brands that are, you know, workarounds. But yeah, how much of that is truly a novel IP for, that's not narrow wide? Because, I mean, technically, some of them are not really narrow wide. They narrow are, Narrow wide fact, is not novel but, IP.
1: Narrow wide has existed yeah, in other a, industries older... for a long
0: time. Yeah, so it was just in the cycling space or a particular yeah. application of it. Yeah, I, I do find that some patents are, um, okay, this isn't like exactly pertinent to that, but it's amazing to me as we read through some of the patents for the stories we've done, how broad some of them are. You know, it's like, well, you, we know you're going to use it this way, but you've gone ahead and mentioned like seven or 10 other ways you can use it just to make sure nobody, nobody else, else can do close. it. Yeah. Well,
1: and, and that is, to me, is one of the symptoms of a patent system um, that goes too far. That's, that's stifling innovation, right? Why else would you do that if you didn't want to make sure that other people can't innovate around you? It's a good question. Well, so, you know, <sighs> it's part of a broader question about how do we, I mean, this is, this is a bike, bike industry is a microcosm, but, you know, who does the patent system serve? You could apply the the same sort of you the same sort of discussion around uh, drug patenting. Drugs take a lot of money to bring to market. Though you might argue, why do they take so much money to bring to market? Right? There's there's policies in place that make things very expensive to bring to market. Some of them um, to protect uh, you know test subjects, and some of them for to protect uh, large corporate interests. Who you know th- th- there's a like if, if it's really expensive to innovate. That limits the pool of innovators. Right. So, and so you know, it, it's, it's, it's not to say like good or bad, but I, I, do, I do think that if, if we as an industry and we as riders want to encourage, if, if the goal is to encourage innovation, the current um, industry dynamics and the current patent system um, more broadly uh, is not achieving that for us.
0: If it were up to you, what change would you make tomorrow? <sighs> <laughs>
1: Um, I would reevaluate the criteria around design patents specifically and make it a lot harder, um, to, to get patents. I actually have to demonstrate genuine innovation. Um, this like, you know, there used to be a ton of, there's been a ton of patents about like, you know, do X, but on the internet. And then, so people just applied for, well, I have a patent for doing this on the internet and they literally didn't create anything, but you know, they've gotten royalties from people who did because they patented it. That's messed up. That's, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a racket. There that's is a liter- lot that
0: needs to be done around patent trolls for sure. Right. Like,
1: well, but, patent trolls are just playing the game as it's laid out through our patent law.
0: Yeah, I agree. Which is the tough part to reconcile with that is like, look, you're just playing by the rules of the game. It's just that the game sucks. You know, like why can't we change the rules? And well, because those who win at the game, then lobby for the rules yeah, to they, they continue kind of make as the they rules. go. And that,
1: and that, that's what I, you know, that, that's the dynamic that, that I see. And again, it's not to say like corporations are bad and, you know, down with capitalism or whatever, like, uh, you know, everything has its upsides and downsides. Um,
0: but you know, maybe we want to recalibrate. Yeah, no, I, I agree. There, there should be some recalibration for sure. Um, well, speaking of capitalism, you also have a <laughs> brand. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell me about thesis. Hmm. So thesis
1: um, started doing the research for thesis. Had this idea. Um, you had a thesis. I had a thesis. I mean, very literal with the naming schema, as as <laughs> you uh, may come to discover. So I, I was at specialized when we did the diverge, and the original one. Know, the original one. Yeah. Um. And you know, I saw like, well, that's not the way I would do that bike. Uh. So you know, I built I built the bike I wanted and built it for myself and my friends, and that was the thesis OB one. Uh, And launched that. So the backstory there, uh, I had this idea, sketched it out, you know, this sort of spec and things like that, reached out to a bunch of factories, got some quotes, did a three-week whirlwind trip through uh, China and Taiwan, meeting two to three factories a day, you know, came back with a suitcase full of parts, built a prototype, got a decal cutter, cut out some decals, put a thesis badge on the the head and the down tube. And then I put up a landing page, uh, me and, and my, my partner at the time, who's no longer involved, uh, made, made, made some other choices with life that weren't, weren't really compatible. Um, that's its own story, but, uh, and started, uh, doing test rides out of my fourth floor walk up in San Francisco. <laughs> Down the stairs? Up, up the stairs, oh, you know, <laughs> to the fourth floor and people came, you know, I, I had all types of people. Um San Francisco is a place, well, I should say, all types of people who have the means to buy a $3000 bike. So that's 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 not all types of people. That's a very small subset of people. Um San Francisco is a place that whatever your feelings about it, uh it is a place that uh loves loves entrepreneurship. And so like I had one of the founding team at Google take Caltrain up to um up, you know, up to the city and then ride his his uh bike over to my place carried up the stairs and then hang with me for an hour where we talked half about bikes and half about you know ai takeover scenarios cuz he was an ai um ex- he he literally wrote the book on on ai uh that uh, all students uh in that field uh, on machine learning that all students in that field right but yeah people like that coming up and test riding this bike and i was like well would you buy one I'm like yeah i'd buy one. it's like will you <laughs> and Um, you know, enough people said yes, so I placed a bunch of orders and had them all, um, the cancellation date for all of them be, I think it was like September 30th or something like that of 2018. And I told everyone, all this money is going to go into escrow. And, you know, if if we're not able to deliver, I'm going to return your money. And $250,000 of pre-sales later, um, just before that date, you know, we, we had a company.
0: Nice. Yeah. Did you run that through Kickstarter or was it just no, friends and kind no, of we, we
1: did ourselves. Uh, we got a little bit of help from, you know, we had, we, we definitely had some bike rumor readers reach out. And, um, I think that the tipping point was I did an episode, I was, uh, an early guest on the gravel ride podcast with Craig Dalton. Right. Uh, and you know, the response to that, and I'm, I'm very grateful and, and, uh, for, to have had that opportunity. You know, the response was generally like, oh, yeah, I'd buy a bike from that guy. Um, I had one one of our riders, I think he was like the fourth person to to actually put money down. He said, I didn't even know if you're going to deliver. <laughs> I just wanted to make it happen. And that was like, so so our ridership has been kind of self-selected for that, uh, which has been absolutely wonderful. It's sustained us through the difficult times. Nice. And where is the brand now? Uh, so we are developing, so we still have our OB1. Um, we are developing a new platform that will be steel and steel with a carbon fork. And we get some interest, we we get some, a, a unique point of view on it. Um, happy to share, uh, the long of the short is adjustable geometry done in a way that's very, um, robust and materials efficient. So it's lightweight and allows the geometry to switch between a true road bike geometry and a true adventure bike geometry. And so, really, going further down this one bike for nearly everything sort of path. and then in steel, because, well, one, it's you know full of transparency, like doing a carbon fame is very expensive. You know, it's eighty thousand dollars of tooling, and that's before any actual development work on CAD and testing and all that other stuff, eighty to one hundred, and that's my cost, and I get subsidized by the vendors. you know if you're if you don't have relationships, it might be much higher. Uh, but steel, I can work with a local custom builder do a few prototypes, you know, spend, you know, 10, 15 grand or whatever. And then production is much lower. You don't have any tools and things like that. And then steel is a product that, I mean, you can have,
0: there are steel bikes from the seventies that are still on the road. They're actually quite desirable. Hipsters love them. So what's, what makes this, like, how do you do the geometry adjustment? Is it like the different dropouts, you know, adjustable headset angle? So in the front, we're thinking a dropout that
1: goes perpendicular to the caliper. Uh, I had actually had this idea some years ago. Um, there's a couple of companies that have done it. I think 8 Bar has a fork that works that I've way. I've seen a
0: couple, yeah. Yeah,
1: and and what's nice about that is you can just have two different rotor sizes on your off-road and road wheels. And if you think about it, in your off-road mode, you want to be a little bit more upright. So you have the the chip in the the more outboard position. And that's also the wheel that you would have... Uh, you would want stronger braking for because it's a it's a bigger radius, right? So it's a bigger lever mm. arm on that that you're you know having to work against. Um, and off road, you generally you know well this peak peak braking forces on the road have the potential to be higher. But but in general, you want you want more power on on the mountain, and then you know smaller rotor for road mode that also drops the front end down. Now we're exploring uh, ways to be able to get not just ten millimeters but maybe twenty millimeters. Um in the front. And then, in the rear, uh, you want to be able not just to extend the dropout, but also change the bottom bracket height. So, and change that bottom bracket height such that when you when you extend the rear and you flip the chip in the front, the bottom bracket is right where you want it. And that's actually harder to do. You couldn't do it with the flip chip I described because it would actually drop the rear axle, and in turn, Slacken the front end when really when you're trying to go into road, might, b- road mode, you're trying to steepen the front end. So you have to go about it a different way. And we have a couple of different things, some of which might be patentable, um, that, uh,
0: that we're exploring. Yeah. With the fork one though, like you, you mentioned that, you know, there are some brands doing something like that. Uh, is that like, do you have to license that design from others or or how are you working it's, around it's that? A, it's, it's just a flip chip. There's no IP around it. I'm kind of surprised nobody has uh, patent on flip ships. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if,
1: if they do, they haven't been enforcing it. And if you don't enforce your patent, you lose it. Like I said, yeah. a, a patent is a right to sue. If you don't yeah. sue, it's like trademark. If you don't protect your trademark, you lose it. Even if you keep paying yeah. for it, you can't come back, you know, 10 years later. And you know, the other party can say, well, I can prove that they knew that we were around and they didn't, you know, object to it and you lose it. So actually not even just a right to sue, an obligation to sue.
0: Yeah, it's true. Yeah, that's what I you know, talking to a lot of bike people over the years is that the expensive part of a patent isn't filing it, it's enforcing it. And it's not cheap to file one if you go through, you know, I guess depending on how technical it is, but I mean, I've heard 10k minimum and that's for a fairly simple one.
1: Oh, and that and and now, you know, so who does the patent system serve? People who innovate or people who can afford patents? Yeah, right? Now, it's obviously it's both, but there's a certain minimum threshold. It's, it's a much bigger thing for me before I had a company to spend, you know, 10 grand is, is small and, and that's, you can file your own patents for a few hundred bucks. But if you don't know what you're doing, you know, that's, that can yeah, be Yeah, the hard.
0: language in them is, I, I always, I do wonder reading through is like how much of that language is absolutely necessary and how much of it is just sort of tradition because like reading through some of them is just,
1: Legalese, I mean, it, it can yeah.
0: make your brain hurt trying to, you know some drill it distill it down to you know you literally have six paragraphs saying like a driller moves inboard when you shift <laughs> You're like really? you do need to be precise at the same
1: time. um you know there's th- there's a, a long standing argument uh, that lawyers use language that keeps lawyers relevant,
0: yeah, I think you know the other part of it too though is um that I guess would be harder for the layperson to do would be the research required to make sure that whatever you're trying to patent doesn't infringe on somebody else's patent because you know, there is such a huge yep. range of patents yep. out there. It's like, where do you even begin? Like, I mean, yep. just trying to do a keyword search on uspto.gov, like have at it. You know, it's like when we're trying to find patents to write stories about, like it's, it takes a minute just to kind of like drill it down to where you're getting any kind of result that's useful. Actually, this is a great segue into Logos.
1: Logos, we started in 2022. Which as is your a, wheel
0: and component brand.
1: Wheel and component brand. Yep. And um, we only started that, we, there's two reasons that we started that, a few reasons we started that company, but two that push it over the edge. I've long been um, a proponent of, of the dual spring star ratchet design created by Huggy in the 90s and popularized by DT Swiss. It is you know, you know, James Huang cited as the world's most reliable hubs, uh, DT's version of it. And, you know, as, as a, as a physics and engineering nerd, um, I look at the design. It's like, this is very robust. It's simple. Um, it's failure modes are, are predictable. It's very serviceable and yeah, it has, it has everything that I want in a hub. And is it the perfect design for every application? No. If you want instant engagement, um, you'd have to make the teeth too small and then you'd lose the robustness. And that's why you have designs like the, you know, the Onyx, uh, Sprague clutch design, which is pretty instant. Um, or, you know, I think, uh, Chris King is 72 teeth and it's also like a ring drive mechanism, but a little bit different or, or like, um, Paul like kind
0: of ring. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Or like Paul based systems, um, that, you know, can get like half a degree of engagements,
0: But Um, but all of those have their, you know, tiny, tiny teeth though. Right. Like I've seen like the, I think the smallest, the star ratchet one is, um, a 52 tooth, which 54, 54, you know, very few. I mean, I think I could count on one hand, the number of brands that have offered that even as an aftermarket upgrade. And it is like awesomely quick, but the teeth are super, super tiny. And if you look at, um, industry nines, you know, um, hydro, whatever that has like the Point six degrees of engagement or something ridiculous. the teeth on that are just minuscule which
1: well and and they're getting that through a mix of small teeth and um, having um several i think they have two or three different sets of paws that are clocked together right and so at any given time let's say you had six paws, maybe only two or three of them are engaged at any time, so it alternates between the two and that's another way that you can get faster engagement with um Without reducing tooth size, and then maybe each pawl has like three different engagement points on it. Um, so there's a few different ways to get around it. But you know, all the designs have their their upsides and downsides. Like King's King's design, I think it's 72. It takes Chris King and that level of precision and uh, manufacturing to make that work reliably. It is you know, if you, I would not want to buy a sec, uh, a knockoff Chris King hub because. The I know what it takes in terms of materials and precision to make. Yeah, uh, same is true of a fifty-four tooth ratchet. Same is true of a a, a high engagement Paul design.
0: Yeah, and um, I would say so, just you know because I don't want to sound like I was knocking industry nines. Like I've seen how they do it with the wire EDM cutting, and it is oh yeah incredible how they do e- it.
1: EDM's awesome. Did, yeah. did you, have you seen? It takes um, forever,
0: but it's really cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you're you're rolling through soon to go to uh, number twenty two. Yes, and they have that EDM on their bikes, it completely disappears. So f- I forget, what does EDM stand for? Essentially, it's it's a wire.
0: Yeah, I can't electro, remember. Electro,
1: electronic dance music, that's it. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs> um, wait for the drop. The uh, <laughs> e- they, it's You have a tiny little wire that is cutting through the material and such that when you bring the two pieces back together after cutting them, there is no it's essentially no visible gap. It's stunning. Um, if if yeah. any with massively high
0: current going through that wire, massively
1: high current, just, yeah. So the know, e is electric blither- or electronic, I think it's I know that. probably plasmaizing the metal.
0: Yeah. yeah. So going back to how logos got started was oh, so you are so a fan of the DT sw- or the ratchet, yeah, ratchet. and
1: and the patent went off. Uh, the patent expired. Yeah, Huggies and that's patent- when like
0: everybody, everybody started. Using it. Using, when using it, was like, it or like some version, version of it. Right? Yeah. When, F- when the FSR patent expired, all of a sudden yeah. there was a lot of mountain bikes with FSR.
1: Yeah. And, you know, reasonably so. It's a great design. We didn't change anything. Now, we'll make some changes in the future. So we have some ideas as to how to improve it, but we'll do it in a backwards compatible way. But the fundamental principle of having two ratchet rings that are floating in relationship to each other, such that, you know, as, as DT Um, calls out in one of their patents. The dual spring mechanism is preferred because it's the preferred embodiment because if one of them is misaligned, the other one has a high likelihood of knocking it back into alignment, which is one of the reasons why the single spring mechanisms have some issues. So the long and the short is like, so we use DT hubs for our thesis wheels. um, And when that went off patent, we had an opportunity with our long-term RIM partner um, to work on the acquisition of a hub maker um, and have a vertically integrated wheel building operation built around the hub design that we have long felt is the the best. Now, is it the best in every way? No, it's not the lightest, it's not the highest engagement. But if you but if you look at the balance of factors, we think for the for the most the biggest number of riders, it's the best design. And so those those two bits of opportunity and having a unique point of view as to like what makes a good wheel set and wheel program uh, is why we started Logos. And it's been going well so far. Very cool. And then
0: now you have other parts, right? Or other parts are coming.
1: Other parts are coming. So all the, like I mentioned, the the fork, um, however that manifests, it will be a a Logos product. And we have some other ideas as to how to make that, you know, even more of a one bike sort of product. So not just a a flip chip that's you know ten or twenty millimeters, uh, but also you know all the routing that you would want for dynamos and the like, and then um, a a paneer mounting system that doesn't use bolts. It's quick release and it leaves no hardware behind and doesn't require the fork to be any heavier than it otherwise would be. Um, And that same system would work in the back as well. Very cool. So thinking about like, how do we make a product that is, is accessible, is a, and is a product that an enthusiast would like. um, But that's, uh, also allows a person to have a single bike that can grow and change with them as a rider, as they, as they change, you know, you want to do road riding, put it in road mode. You want to go on an adventure ride, you know, you have ways of attaching all the gear you could want. Yeah. And when is that supposed to come out? Uh, we're looking at next year. It'll come out when, when we feel that it's ready. So we're in the development process right now, but sometime next year.
0: Very cool. Well, Randall, that was, that was a lot. (laughs) <laughs> so if we need to, you know, maybe we'll do a part two sometime, but, um, yeah, it's kind of a lot to chew on for now. Awesome. Appreciate well, your, uh, your insights and your, your opinions is always fun.
1: It's, uh, I do want to say like, um, yeah, I alluded to this earlier, but early in, in my entrepreneurial journey in this industry, you know, getting, you know, getting something in bike rumor was, was a big deal. And, you know, I, and I've said this to folks like Kaylee Fretz and James Huang and, you know, Ben Delaney and others who, um, if not friends, I at least consider them friendly acquaintances at this point, you know, whose work I respected. And I kind of resonate with the journey that you had building Bike Rumor and all the challenges with that. And it's, it's, uh, I expect no special treatment. And, ex- and in fact, uh, quite to the contrary, uh, need to be held accountable. Uh, but it is, it is, uh, it was delightful to be able to have this sort of conversation. May, yeah. may many more can
0: uh, follow. Yeah, well, thank you. Appreciate the kind words too. Yeah. If you like this episode and have a product or tech you're curious about, head over to Bikerumor.com slash podcasts and fill in the form to submit your idea. You'll also find links and photos for this episode there, plus a link to this and every other episode we've ever recorded. If you really like this and want more, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player and leave us a rating and review. That's the grease that keeps our wheels spinning over here in podcast land, and it helps us keep getting amazing guests for you. You can find us on social. We're at BikeRumor on all the things. And if you like random entrepreneurship, NFT, Web3, cycling stuff, you'll find me at Tyler Benedict on all the social channels. Thanks for listening. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.